so if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and your um, position in the DBH and all of that first. Yes. Um, so my name is Julie Wiegand. I am the um, State Opioid Response Grant Project Director. Um, so I basically oversee a $23.8 million um, grant that uh, is from the Federal uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Um, the purpose of the grant is to support prevention, treatment, recovery, and harm reduction services for people who use opioids and stimulants in the district. Um, so there's a lot going on under the <laughs> grant. Um, and I have been in this position since June of 2020. Um, and yeah, the grant is two years. Um, so it started in September 2021. So we we just finished the first fiscal year of the grant. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's pretty recent of a of a grant to Yeah, this so this one is technically the second iteration of the grant is called so State Approved Response is called SOAR, that's the acronym. Um okay. there's a SOAR one as well that started in two thousand nineteen. Okay. So this is actually the second iteration. Um but yeah, it's a it's a ton of money from the yeah. government <laughs> to states and localities for opioids and stimulants. Oh that's great. Yeah, especially considering D C doesn't usually get um or is considered as differently for a lot of yeah. products yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, could you speak a little bit as to what's already in place in DC pertaining to harm reduction? And is there any data yielding success in these programs? Yes. So we have a lot going on. Um, we, so I think like kind of what we've done um, most prominently at DBH is around naloxone distribution. Mm -hmm. um, we distributed over 50,000 units of naloxone in FY21, oh, wow. um, which is over 50, per it's more than 50% of what we did in FY20. Um, so we're super proud of that. Um, we've also increased the number of community-based organizations that have standing orders to distribute naloxone. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we started the year with like 30 something and we have almost a hundred. Oh, wow. So that means, just like the places that people can get naloxone, like the number of those places have increased. Um, we also have a text to live campaign. So anybody in the district can text 888-811 and get a map of places where they can go get naloxone. Um, we also use that kind of texting service to follow up with like treatment resources and stuff like that. Um, and we've been advertising that everywhere. So hoping to just like build general awareness that way. Um, in terms of other things, you know, DC has a Good Samaritan law, so we're also working on some like publications around the Good Samaritan law, like advertising it, um, giving it actually to MPD to hand out to be like, hey, like our logo is on this, we yeah. can't arrest you if there's drug paraphernalia on scene or if you call because somebody overdosed. Um, so excited about that. Yeah, that's uh, we great. have a couple of syringe service programs in the district. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the most prominent ones are HIPS and Family Medical Services. Yeah. We have a couple of others. Um, and then we just got approval, or SAMHSA kind of just gave all of the states the green light to start distributing fentanyl test strips. Oh, great. Yeah, so that is, I think that's like our big, those are our big harm reduction things. Um, we have outreach, we've, DBH and DC Health both support outreach teams that are also pretty harm reduction focused. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of have that going on in the background as well. Oh, that's great. Uh, would you say there's any barriers in achieving or receiving naloxone distribution right now for clients? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, not as many pharmacies are participating as we would like. Like, Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to say that anybody in the district can walk into any pharmacy and get naloxone without having to pay anything or, like, show insurance or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're definitely not there yet. Um, I think just the barriers around naloxone, I think a lot of people are, like, afraid to use it or afraid to carry it because they don't feel like they know how to use it, even though it's really easy to do. Um, and then it's also just really expensive. Frankly, it's $75 per box of two doses. Is this, um, Um, sorry, is this Narcan or, um, is it the nasal one? Okay. Yeah. The nasal. Um, so the government, like the government rate is around $75 for two doses. So we, I mean, luckily we have a lot of store money to spend on naloxone, but Mm -hmm. like, I mean, it's a huge resource issue. You know, if we didn't have all that money, um, I don't know how we would afford it. And, you know, the SOAR grant only lasts two years and we're dependent on Congress to like reapprove it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would like to see the cost of it come down just so that everybody, like if you think about all 50 states spending millions of dollars on naloxone, like we're just funneling money towards yeah. the pharmaceutical <laughs> company. So. Yeah, which isn't um, <laughs> ideal. Yeah. It would also be great if naloxone was just available over the counter. Um, yes. And you didn't need, so we didn't have to mess with any of these like prescription or standing order issues at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that DBH is working towards? I wouldn't say we're advocating for that. Um, mostly because we don't, you know, we're not like in, we're an implementing agency, service yeah. agency, not an advocacy agency. Um, yeah. But you know, I know that there definitely are parties that are advocating for that, and it would certainly make our life easier if we didn't have to deal with um, getting organization standing orders to distribute naloxone. Yeah, yeah. Um, in your experience, either at your workplace or generally just within the um, discussion surrounding harm reduction, have you seen an attitude change towards harm reduction in the past couple of years? And if so, how? So I think so. Um it's definitely a more radical idea for the people who have been working like in behavioral health longer. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of like, you know, if you have somebody that's like 35 or younger, I think harm reduction is like an obvious, like, Oh, of course, duh kind of thing to them. And I think for like the older generations that weren't taught about it, it's like a, a much bigger adjustment. So obviously as, more young people start taking leadership positions in this field, I think it'll get a lot easier. Um, just have that mindset at kind of every step of the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, this is another question sort of along the same route, but more pertaining to clients. So oftentimes with things like injection sites and safe syringe services, among like a lot of other harm reduction policies, it takes a while to fully have it function due to mistrust between users and government organizations. How is the DBH working to create the trust between clients and um, their services provided? Yeah, so we um, we have kind of limited like levers we can pull around that. So since we mostly, you know, we don't directly provide a lot of harm reduction services. We give people money to do it. Mm-hmm. So we can put in their scope of work, like you have to get input from people with lived experience. Like you have to hire this many, you know, recovery coaches or peer workers. Mm-hmm. Um, we can do stuff like that, but a lot of it is kind of up to them to create that, like, you know, welcoming and inclusive culture and, and to listen to the people that they're serving and stuff like that. And some of our providers are like really great at it. And some of them, I think still need to do some work on it. Um, 
but we are, you know, we're trying, I think, to put more of that kind of language that like you have to have a person centered harm reduction mindset into, um, our scope of work when we give people grants. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's obviously beneficial to have community partners as well in the community Mm -hmm. rather than the actual government organization being the one directly corresponding to clients. Um, I also wanted to ask a little bit about the live long DC plan and just have you talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that because that's a big thing right now in DC. So. Yeah, so the Live Long DC plan uh, predates me at DBH by a little bit. So I started <laughs> after it was created. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think it's, I think the strength of it is that it's really comprehensive. It like goes through all of the different elements of like things related to opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think finding things that are measurable that we can like say we made progress on. Um, that aren't just overdose deaths are really important because overdose deaths are kind of like the final metric. Um, and there's so much that contributes to that, that I think the live long DC plan kind of helps us say like, okay, these are intermediary steps that we need to take in order to ultimately reduce overdose deaths. So it helps us track our progress, um, against those things. In addition to just like the final outcomes of overdoses and overdose deaths. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for things like injection sites, I know that that's a big controversy as of now. Um, is that something that DC is planning on doing or that the DBH has been invested into recently? Yeah, so um, my just some background, my past job, I worked for a philanthropy oh. um, and I made grants, a lot of grants around research for safe consumption sites and a little bit of advocacy so I'm like very familiar with kind of the background in a lot of places. Oh, great. Um, and I think, yeah, coming to DC is hard because, you know, I think we want to be prepared to open a supervised consumption site, but ultimately like that decision needs to be made at the federal level if it's yeah. going to be legal or not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like not really like the, it's a federal law that's prohibiting it. So we don't have a lot of control over that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a feasibility study and I think we're open to doing more like, you know, research in preparation if it were to ever become legal. Um, but ultimately I think it would have to be at least more illegal than it is now yeah, um, yeah. for us to, to seriously pursue it. Mm-hmm. Especially considering DC generally, at least the population is pretty pro harm reduction it it's mm-hmm. just difficult to implement yeah well it's also um you know i think it's like a very people like to promote supervised consumption um because it's kind of like a general harm reduction thing and i would never you know not want to open one if it was allowed but um i think we have data that shows that like 60 percent, maybe a little bit more than that of our overdoses are actually happening in people's houses um so in that case, a supervised consumption site wouldn't really help them because they're already doing it inside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like they're injecting in the street, which is like kind of a target of a lot of supervised consumption sites. So yeah. I think we'd have to think about how to tailor it kind of to DC specific population too. Exactly. Yeah. And having other people there or with, with Nalexone yeah. so that you prevent at least um, overdoses alone. Um mm-hmm. As for medication assistant treatment, because that's a big thing right now as well, specifically more long-term medicated assistant treatment, so things like Suboxone, um, what would you say are benefits and what are drawbacks of that program? Yeah, I mean, I think the benefits are all over kind of the research in terms of like reduced 
disease severity and increased, um, you know, increased positive outcomes, um, reduced risk of death, reduced risk of injection related infection, reduced risk of overdose, all that. Um, I think the barriers are just, um, we have data that show that when people stop taking their, their medications, um, their risk of overdose increases dramatically. So just like being really um, proactive about re-engaging treat- people in treatment and, um, you know, following up with them if they stop going, like quickly, like within the next, you know, it happens like within the first 30 days. Um, I think that is like really, really important. Um, also just reducing the barriers to getting it, you know, DC has like a super high health insurance coverage rate. So we're lucky there. Um, but just making it basically making treatment easier to get than drugs is something that we need to work on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how would you respond to general arguments that harm reduction doesn't encourage recovery by giving tools to help with drug use and is therefore harmful in the long run? Um, I, I mean, I would just say like, you can't recover if you're dead. That's like uh, the common kind of argument, but I, I don't think there's a better one. Um, you know, you need to take those harm reduction steps in order to get to a point where you can like be more stable and in long-term recovery, whatever that means to you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also like the societal conversation around drug use and like, I think it's a common perception that all drug use is bad. And I think we need to challenge that and talk more about the people who can use drugs and not become addicted or not, you know, have like serious problems. Um, you know, do they need to be in recovery if it's not actually like, if, if they're not actually problematically using drugs, like probably not. Um, Mm -hmm. so saying that everybody needs to be abstinent or everybody needs to be in treatment or in recovery is, is just like not very nuanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How do you believe DC residents could help promote harm reduction as well? Carry naloxone. Yeah. (laughs) Everywhere. (laughs) Um, you know, because like that stat that a lot of people are overdosing in their house, that means like, it's not, I think a lot of people see heroin users as like the people they see out on the street. Yeah. Um, and that's like a small percentage of people who use drugs in the district. So like, I think people need to realize like, this is our neighbors. These are the people you see every day. And like one day they may need you to have naloxone and you don't even know it. So everyone should have it. Um, I think like really destigmatizing that is, is the most important thing that like an average person can do. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that reaches more people than like a supervised consumption site ever will or, or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, well, it's never discussed as very nuanced. I think people in DC very generally are pro harm reduction until someone asks to open up a rehabilitation center in their neighborhood or to, yeah. So I think that's a big part of the issue coming into it. Um, yeah, I think... yeah. Carry naloxone and don't be a NIMBY. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The amount of yeah. discussions I've had with people who, yeah, after doing my internships, I think I'm currently doing one um at Crossing Place. I don't know if you know where that or what that mm-hmm. organization is. It's a stabilization center, usually for people either um coming off the streets or coming out of the hospital. Um, okay. So it's not necessarily geared towards. Uh, clients who are users but most of the time they are users because it's usually uh-huh. low-income populations um, and or and or people on the streets who have gone to hospitals for that thing and uh-huh. I think a lot of the time people don't realize that it's 
it's people that I that could have been my neighbors or who could have. Yeah, no, it could be really anybody. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially with like the prevalence of opioids and fentanyl. Fentanyl right now. Just too. everywhere today. It's like, yeah, nobody is immune. Yeah, yeah, fentanyl is in really everything now, so, um, which is yeah. a terrifying thought. Could you speak a little bit more also about the fentanyl testing strips? So they're going to be available in D.C.? Yeah, so we um, have partnered with some of our grantees to give them some to kind of test out on a pilot basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're, they're a tool that we should make available, but they're also kind of fidgety because um, they only, like there's so many fentanyl analogs out there and the testing strips only test for a certain number of analogs. Mm-hmm. So it is possible that you could use one and it shows it comes up negative for fentanyl, but there is fentanyl in your drugs, which makes it actually more dangerous. Um, you also have to like prepare a sample to test correctly. So if you don't do that, obviously they won't work. Um, so I don't think that's like going to be what saves everybody in the district, but I think it will be a tool. Um, hopefully that people can use, especially people who are like using cocaine and where there shouldn't be any opioids in that. Um, if the fentanyl tester can tell them like, Hey, this isn't just, cocaine like i think that would be helpful yeah especially considering how much it's in now and how many overdoses it's causing 